Katie Andrew Dowdy here on the High Motor Podcast, and we're going to talk college basketball coaching hires of this millennium here in a little bit, maybe have some story time uh, if we have time. But Chase, I want to start with a question for you to open today's show. It's this Kirk Herbstreit situation, because I don't know if people are actually serious with their criticism of him, or if we're just sitting here, what... 17, 18 days without sports, two and a half weeks without sports, and people are just bored and need something to, to scream about. So before we get into this, I think everybody saw it, right? I mean, I, I can assume that there's so little information out there with actual sports that people saw Herb Street's comments where he said, I'll be shocked if we have NFL football this fall. If we have college football, I'll be so surprised if that happens. I mean, he goes on for a little bit with TMZ at no point during these comments does Kirk Herbstreit make any sort of medical conclusion or claim that he has medical expertise? The closest thing that he says to anything medical related, he says, just because from what I understand, people that I listen to, you're 12 to 18 months from a coronavirus vaccine. I don't know how you let these guys go into locker rooms and let stadiums be filled, yada, 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 optics, all that kind of stuff. At no point during these seven or eight sentences from TMZ does he make any sort of medical conclusion, but this has unleashed some bizarre firestorm of criticism, not from just the Twitter mass trolls, from actual media people. And we'll get into how much you actually care about those media people that have criticized him, but we're on the same page here. Kirk Kirk Herbstreit did absolutely nothing wrong by saying he would be shocked if we have football this fall. No, I, I don't... It's first of all, it's like the same. You can't have it both ways. You can't tell people like, "Hey, if you if you're a voice that resonates, if you're a big time A list commentator, you can't say things like this that could influence what actually ends up happening." You can't say that and then also say, "Hey, you if you're a big time commenter, you need to speak responsibly and be social socially conscious and like push for things that are sa- like." You can't do both. So I, I need people to figure out at least which direction they would like people to talk in first. And then, I don't know, man, the, the guy, like it was a reasonable position. Hey, we're nowhere. It doesn't seem like we're scientifically anywhere close to like coming up with a vaccine or anything. So at this point, I don't know how we're supposed to suit up and play football in four months. And he's not even like screaming about this on Twitter. It's, I don't know how TMZ got a hold of him. I don't know if he was just walking outside of his house and they approached him and he was forced to give comments. Not like he's screaming about this. And he made, again, he made no sort of medical conclusion. He was asked for his opinion, which everybody has given. And that's why I, I mean, do you think that he's actually influencing, I, I follow Dan Wolken pretty closely and I don't, he's been on the show a couple of times and I don't agree with all of his opinions, but his, and it, it's tough because Twitter is not real life. Therefore mentions are not real life, but over the last two and a half weeks, he's kind of been one of the more 
leading voice, I don't know how you want to put it, on this stuff saying, hey, don't be surprised if the tournament doesn't happen. Don't be surprised if it's several weeks. Don't be surprised if the draft gets moved, all of this stuff. And he's gotten blasted for it, again, by the Twitter masses, so not an accurate reflection of society. But do people actually think that Dan Wolken, Kirk Herbstreit moved the needle? Those are two huge names in sports. I get that. But do you really think some some governor in, in the South or these ADs in the South are saying, oh, Kirk Herbstreit said this, we, we probably can't have football this year? We better check in with Dan Wilkin before we craft this policy. Do you think Congress called like like John Rothstein to be like, hey, John, we just wanted to check in. Uh, do you think $2 billion or $2 trillion or $3 trillion on the stimulus package? We wanted to get your opinion first. Do you think that, with all due respect, do you think that anyone actually gives a shit? I mean, wh- wh- any of these power brokers... I- Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of dumb power brokers in college football. I get that. Maybe Larry Scott actually did call Dan Wilkin or Kirk Herbstreit. But do you think that anyone actually that makes these decisions said, you know what, Kirk Kirk said this. I don't I don't know about football this year. No one cares. I think it's people are already really low right now, maybe because of real reasons where like they're afraid or because of stupider reasons like, you know, Man, there's already no NCAA tournament. There's already no spring sports. I know some people don't care about spring sports. I was talking uh, with our friend Sam Herter the other day from Hero Sports, and he was kind of like, yeah, I mean, the only sport I really care about whether or not it gets canceled is football. Like, it, it sucks that there's no softball, but, like, I don't really care that much. I care that there's no softball. It bums me out. So it, it's like people are already low from that. I wonder how much of it is just, man, I haven't even recovered from the idea of no basketball and no spring sports. And now you're telling me there might not be football. Like, I don't want this. Don't put this in my face. Don't don't even address it. Like, I don't want to think about that. And maybe if I don't think about it, like, it'll never come to pass. I wonder how much of it's that. It has to be. Some of it has to be that. And some of it, again, has to be just us sitting here for the last two and a half weeks with something. And I think it's, I mean, I just pull like Danny Cannell, he tweeted and I know Danny Cannell, his opinions are questionable anyway, so again, I don't want to put too much stock into that. But he tweeted on, so today, is, we're talking here on Sunday, Friday morning, and it, it very clearly was a response to Herb Street. He didn't put this in the tweet, but it was basically when all that stuff was trending. He tweeted, can we leave opinions on the return of sports to the scientists and doctors instead of athletes and commentators, please? And then a thanks with the prayer emoji. And I saw that tweet and I was like, God, there's no, I mean, Danny Cannell is, is not a consistent individual. He had to have tweeted something over the last couple of weeks uh, saying the contrary. And he sure did on March 12th. So 15 days earlier, he tweeted, this sucks. NCAA couldn't have suspended sports for two to three weeks and then reevaluated. Canceling all spring sports altogether is a massive knee jerk reaction. I get taking maximum precautions, but this is ridiculous. And even though he's one of the most in, inconsistent, I think he's he's borderline unbearable in terms of sports commentators. But still, is that just a matter of we've been sitting here for two and a half weeks and we don't even know how we felt two and a half weeks ago? Or is that just a god-awful opinion? If I wanted to give Danny the benefit of the doubt, and as you've said, he, he has a... We're he not going to do that. He, he doesn't has an inconsistent that. track record, so he probably doesn't deserve it. But if I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, I would say... That his dad is a doctor, so maybe he does have a slightly, you know, more expert opinion, like readily in front. And of him. And he didn't call his dad 15 days ago, but he called him now. I don't know. Um, I think you're reaching. I, I think I'm reaching too. 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you another element of this. And it's the thing that I think a lot of us maybe know, but we never like talk about or address is like the science of forming a take. And some people think about this stuff maybe, and some people don't, but like if you're Herb Street and you come out and say, well, maybe not now because it's gotten so much attention, but if you come out and say, man, I don't know if there's going to be a football season. Like I'm not sure that's going to work. And then you're right. You look like you're, you're on the pulse of it. You look like you understand the situation. And if there is football, everybody's so excited that there's football that that comment kind of gets lost in the ether and nobody really remembers that, you know, five years from now. So there is sort of a science of like predicting and, and there, there are safe opinions that maybe get lost if you're wrong. Like that, I wonder how much that comes into stuff like this too. When if there's no football, how many people are like, see? Kirk, you did it. Those late March comments in in they, they affected what happens five months later with no football. It is your fault. People would be saying that. Nobody that I would take seriously, though. Do I like? I, I wouldn't read a column. I don't think in September. Like, welp. This is the this is the culmination of a long road that started with Kirk Herbstreet talking to a guy from TMZ. And Danny Cannell is going to write that column. Jason Whitlock is going to write. I'm not going to read it. Absolutely not. And again, I don't know how much we even care about Jason Whitlock's opinion here, but people are still. I mean, they're mad. Like for for example, Jason Whitlock said, "I think he's one of the most important voices in football, and that's why I have a problem with these comments." I just don't think those of us with a platform and with a respected voice in sports, how we can jump out here as coronavirus experts when the experts aren't really experts because this is brand new. Right, but that's not what he did. Exactly. A, that's not even what he did at all. And Jason Whitlock is the type of person where this comment is hilarious because he has a lot of hot takes in which he claims to know something about a certain sport or a certain topic. But that that is going to happen because with what – if there's no football in, in – August. I don't know if Jason Whitlock specifically, but somebody will write an article that says, Kirk Herbstreit, this is your fault. Dan Wolken, this is your fault. Or even if it's not your fault, like what you said, this this got the ball rolling. This narrative started back in March when Kirk Herbstreit, ESPN College Football Commentator, somebody's going to write that. And then with that, Jason Whitlock is basically, the, the irony here is hilarious. Because there will be a platform, Jason Whitlock will mention this in August, if it's canceled. He will go back and say Kirk Herbstreit said this back in March and we got the ball rolling. I'm pretty damn certain by that. Well, if it does, it's just one more person I know. You know, if, if it's Whitlock, fine. If it's if it's not Whitlock, if it's somebody else, that's one more person I know that like, okay, I shouldn't really take this person seriously. Because just the idea that like you – I get being careful with what you say when you have a lot of people listening to you. But the idea that like the bigger your platform, the more like – conservative and choosy you need to be with your words and like only speak truth to power in certain contexts like i'm not interested in that i just is that fair though is it because kirk herbstreet has because kirk herbstreet has a bigger audience i don't know how many twitter followers he has but i'm guessing literally hundreds of thousands if not millions of people saw his comments because he has a bigger following than whatever guy from from barstool or sports illustrator or whoever he's not supposed to have again he didn't even say anything wrong no this is just ridiculous this he's not stupid. telling people to this take to the streets and overthrow the government i'm sorry or, let's move on you know, this is so dumb, dumb. Yeah. i can't even believe he wasted this much time with it because it's so stupid it's really dumb anyways slow coaching carousel this year and 
usually during this time of the year, we're going to you know be ranking the first-year coaches, the hires and the firings and all that, but there just isn't really anything. We're talking here on Sunday, and I think there's still only 18. There hasn't been any of those high-major openings. And a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting here thinking, you know, what else can we talk about in terms of hires? And it was right at the time when Rutgers was supposed to go to the NCAA tournament for the first time since 91, and now they can't. And th- sitting here thinking, God, Steve Peichel has done a phenomenal job at Rutgers. That's got to be one of the best hires over the last decade. Then I extended it just back to 2000. And I said, who are the best college basketball hires since 2000? I wrote about it at Herosports.com. I uh, did the top 25 hires. I also have an honorable mention list if, you, if you're curious why somebody got left off. And I, I'm Chase, I'm kind of just curious your opinion generally on the list itself. I want you to rip it apart if there's any problem with it. But the one thing that I want your take on is, uh, I guess, asking this question. I think it's very similar to a question that we asked ourselves last week. Who lost the most with the canceled NCAA tournament? You know, Was it Dayton because a potential Final Four run could have changed that program dramatically? Was it San Diego State, even Creighton? Or was it Kansas? Was it the best team in college basketball? Kind of how do you, how do you weigh that debate? What school of thought do you subscribe to? And the question here that's similar is, how do you weigh a hire like, for example, Bo Ryan at Wisconsin versus Roy Williams at North Carolina? How do you weigh taking over a program like Wisconsin, a program who was decent for the few years before Bo Ryan arrived, but for like the 60 years before that was basically trash. And then Bo comes in and starts ripping off tourney appearances every few years, was within reach of that title back in 2015, I think. How do you weigh that versus Roy Williams, who, even though UNC struggled a little bit with Matt Doherty before he got there, it's still a premier situation, still with premier support, premier money and resources to win the three titles. The success there for Roy Williams in North Carolina is is undeniably better than Bull Ryan. I get that. There's absolutely no debate that. Anybody that thinks otherwise is just wrong. But I ranked Bull Ryan in this higher. So I have Bull Ryan as the fifth best hire since 2000, Roy Williams 7. I also ranked Bull Ryan ahead of John Calipari, Bill Self, even John Beeline, Rick Pitino at Louisville. And even though North Carolina's hire worked out very, very well, I'm more of the belief that I think a lot of other guys could have done what Roy has done at North Carolina, or at least very close to it. And to be very, very clear here, I'm not at all discounting what Roy has done. Aside from the bullshit academic fake class stuff that that he and everyone else at North Carolina deserves the criticism for, aside from that, he's been spectacular. But I still, I don't think it was a better hire than Bo Ryan. Where do you stand on that? How do you weigh those two situations? Uh, first of all, this is just a great idea by you. Uh, it's a great poll. And it, it doesn't feel forced like, oh, man, we got to f- come up with content because coronavirus, blah, 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 blah. Like this is a genuinely good exercise to go through. And the brilliance of it, which I think is the answer to your question, is you're you're talking about performance relative to expectation, right? And that that's why most of the guys that are on this list are on this list. Like the the number 25 at the top of the list is Tommy Amaker, who is one of my favorite coaches to watch. And it's a brilliant hire by Harvard. They've gotten a lot of juice out of it. And Harvard really has very little business being nationally relevant year to year or even every few years in college basketball. But Tommy Amaker is so good and he's put together such great teams there uh, and, you know, made some interesting moves in the NCAA tournament that 
Harvard every couple of years has a really good team. So that, I mean, that's a, that's a great idea. And it's also, I think, a great exemplar of what we're talking about when we're putting together this list. Let me jump in here really quickly on, on the Amaker part. Um, because you mentioned them, that was a, a, a significant theme when I was doing this. Not only did he rip off those, I think they had four straight births a few years back, they've been able to keep him. Like they, they hired yeah. a coach in which they've been able to keep him now going into year 14. And that's why, you know, some of these coaches are a little bit higher, like Greg Marshall, for example. How much of that is Wichita State's deal, doing? Yes, they, they've made a financial investment. How much of keeping Tommy Amaker we should credit Harvard with, or if Tommy Amaker just wants to be at Harvard? But so much of this is, for whatever reason, if it was luck or they just made a really good hire, Harvard has been able to keep Tommy Amaker now for 14 years. That was a huge piece of this. Yeah, and, and Harvard, we see this a lot when we cover FCS football on the other side of things with Hero Sports. Ivy League sports have unique things that they can offer to keep coaches to attract players. Like they they have a they they can do some things that nobody else can do. So that's definitely a part of that. But it, it's still a credit to the administration of some of the different things that they've been able to do to keep Amaker from going somewhere else. I think when you go back farther down the list and talk about your your original uh, Ryan B. Williams question. I think the best metaphor, and I, I don't like making political metaphors unless they're absolutely perfect, but I do kind of think this one is. When you talk about people could have done, uh, other people could have done exactly what Roy Williams has done at North Carolina. That's not to take away from his success, but like it's North Carolina, so you can have success there. I remember in the 2016 election, uh, a big part of Trump's electability to a lot of people was that he was a business guy and he, you know, he had had so much success financially. And some people would come back and say, Hey, you know, like if I started with $50 million, I probably could have made a lot of money too. And whether you agree or disagree with that idea, I think that's kind of the idea behind Roy Williams in North Carolina, right? If you're a good coach, even a really good coach, if you're in that, you know, sort of top 20 coaches list, if you're in North Carolina, you're probably going to win a national championship. Like the the facilities, the history, the the conference, where you are geographically, it, you know, in North Carolina and, and the rivalry with Duke and everything that's there for you to succeed. If you're a decent coach, you're probably going to get a championship. I think Roy Williams has probably outcoached what other people would have done, but I think there are other people that maybe would have done a better job than him. So I think as we're probably coming up toward the end of his run, I, I don't think he's going to be there, let's say, 10 years from now, right? Like he's he's getting up there in age, his health is... not five years from now. I don't even know if he'll be there five years. Yeah, I, I didn't want to put like a really harsh number on it. But yeah, I, I think we're totally. No, I will. Yeah, run. I'll put a harsh number on it. Like if you put Bill Self at North Carolina, I don't think it's crazy to think that he might like outperform what Roy Williams has done there. So, Or even a lesser name. I mean, I... I know earlier this season when Roy Williams was really frustrated and he basically told AD Bubba Cunningham to fire him. I thought, okay, sure, let's fire him. And who and who would who would they hire? And one of the names that purely speculative. We don't have a, a damn clue if Hubert Davis is kind of the coach and waiting there or if we go outside. But one of the coaches I was intrigued by is Scott Drew, who's also on this list. He's the, he's number six on this list. I don't. We know a lot more about Scott Drew now than we did in two thousand and three. I mean, when he got to Baylor, he walked into an impossible situation. He was only head coach at Valpo for one year. So if you put a lesser coach in, in Scott Drew at the time, if they had hired Scott Drew instead, 
I would, I based on what we know now and how remarkable of a job he's done at Baylor, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, and we can agree that Scott Drew is a, a tier below Bill Self as a coach himself. I think we're on the same page with that, right? Yes. So if you were to put Scott Drew at North Carolina, I think it's reasonable to say, yeah, Scott Drew could have won a title or two. And yes, winning three titles in the short period that Roy Williams has done is incredible. But going back to your, your point last uh, last week, talking about what a national championship would do for Kansas, if Kansas wins two national championships over the next 20 years or three, sure, the third one is great, but there's not a huge difference there. So if North Carolina wins only two national championships under Scott Drew or one, there's a huge difference between one, two, and three, but still... I think Scott Drew, a coach of, of lesser stature than a Bill Self, or even if you want to go farther down the list, could have probably done a pretty good job at North Carolina. Yeah, going back to your Bo Ryan idea, if you switched Bo Ryan and Roy Williams, do you think Roy Williams wins a national title at Wisconsin? Do you think Bo Ryan wins one in North Carolina? I don't know. I don't know. I think Bo Ryan's a really unique example because of the type of players he recruited, the type of system that he ran. I don't know. It's almost like a Tony Bennett at Virginia situation where Tony Bennett's not reeling in five-star guys. A lot of, even though with the national title and with all the success he's had over the last, what, five, six years now, I don't know this for a fact. Like, I've never talked to a recruit that says, I don't want to go play for Tony Bennett at Virginia. I don't want to play that kind of defense. I don't want to slow things down the offensive end. We know that recruits didn't want to go do that. For Bo Ryan, they don't they don't want to do that for Greg Gard, even though Greg Gard has done a pretty remarkable job of recruiting, especially in state. But anyways, yeah, I, I think Bo Ryan is a unique example because I think a lot of players wouldn't have played for Bo Ryan at North Carolina, even though it was North Carolina. Uh, not to kind of go off script here, but I am curious since we have uh, we've got Beeline here at number ten. How, I know you're not Captain NBA, but how how does what he did with the Cavs over the last year affect how you see him as a coach, if it does at all? I, I have a hard time saying right when he stepped down or if he was fired, I don't know, whatever happened a few months ago, there were, it seemed to be two things. He's stepping down because he's done. Maybe he could have rolled the season, but he's just done being a college basketball coach. He's 67 years old. He's accomplished a lot. Um, he hasn't won the national championship, but still. He's an older guy with a lot on the resume, a lot of money. Or number two, he's stepping down because he knows that there's something else. And this was obviously before the coronavirus just completely halted this coaching carousel. But those seem to be the, the general sides of it. I still haven't really picked a side. And it's going to make it a lot harder now that a job hasn't opened up. I mean, I had Connor O'Neill from the Winston-Salem Journal on the show uh, earlier this week. And he said, yeah, maybe if, if they were to move on from Danny Manning here, we haven't got an actual announcement. Maybe if they were to, maybe John Beeline's in play. But still, I mean, I know Coach K is getting up there, and there's some other coaches that have coached longer, but 67, I mean, what, what are you hoping to get seven, eight years out of him, and is that enough? I don't mm. know. I don't know. And, and that— Which side of that are you on? Are you, are you, of, the belief that he's, are you of the belief that he stepped down because he, he wants to do something else, or do you think that he's done? Uh, when he stepped down from the Cavs? Yeah. Oh, he he lost the locker room. No, 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 no. Do you think that he's done it? Do you think he 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 chose to do that, whether or not it was his choice or not? I'm sure he again he probably could have wrote it out if he wanted to. But do you see that as a sign of he's just done as a coach, or he knows that you know what I can I can call it quits now, get into this coaching carousel early, put my name out there, and get a job? Which side do you think? Which side are you on with that? I think there's a third side, which is it was so unprecedentedly bad in Cleveland 
that he was like, I can't even be here anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know what the next step is. He wasn't but even I, thinking about his future at all. No, I think he was just like, I yeah, have to fair. get out of this building. That's fair. Do you have any other major problems with this list? Do you have a problem with putting Greg Marshall at three? I don't think I have any major problems with any part of the list. I think Tony Bennett's the obvious number one. Really? Because I went back and forth on him and Jay Wright quite a bit. And again, it's something where Jay Wright has had more success, but he's also been there for, what, eight, nine years longer, but he also walked into Villanova, not Virginia. Right. It's just, I don't know, man. There's something, I don't want to sound like guy who lives in Virginia, but I'm not a UVA fan. My sister went there, but other than that, you know, I wouldn't consider myself, like, attached to UVA. There's something about college football and college basketball and some other college sports too, where it's like, we know who the elite powers are. And those guys almost always end up winning championships. And Virginia is just not on that list. And so for him to make them as competitive as they are year after year and win a bunch of ACC championships, and we know how good the ACC is at basketball, and then break through last year, a year after the most weirdest, iconic upset in the history of the NCAA tournament to turn around and win a national championship at a place that is not one of those schools that that wins championships in men's basketball. I just think that there's something to that that is not really replicable by anybody else on this list. As good as Jay Wright's been, he's been there almost 20 years now, and he, he gets the championships. Villanova was still a player, you know, like you said. They they weren't one of those elite teams, but they, they had some history. And UVA, I mean, had been, I don't want to say irrelevant, because that's a big word, but since Samson, like, I, I don't know what they had done that you would write. Well, even if you, I I try really hard to remember, and I've looked back at some news articles to see the reactions when Tony Bennett left Washington state, which now is a bad job. And back then it was a bad job. They've had spotty success, but when he left Washington state for Virginia, yes, it was an upgrade, but it was, it was more of a, like, really? Like, and honestly, it's kind of like Bronco Mendenhall going to Virginia and there's some different factors at play there, but it's like a, like, yeah, I mean, are you, are you, are you really taking that big of a step up here? You're you're going to Virginia. Like, what are you, what are you looking for? Do you think if you can win at Virginia, then you you get the big call? But it wasn't like, uh, yeah, great, you know, great step up, excellent career move, much better job. It was a better job, but it wasn't at all this huge step up. I mean, it wasn't Bill Self going from Illinois to Kansas. It wasn't John Calipari going from Memphis to Kentucky. It was going from a widely regarded bad job to a widely regarded like eh, not a great job. I think we kind of forget that. I think we forget the the elements of coaching decisions that don't directly impact like our experience as consumers of the sport. Yeah, they're not robots like they have they're humans with Right. Humans. You know, they have families and they have they have, you know, interests outside of football or basketball maybe and you know like Tony Bennett, it Char- when you look at taking the UVA job, it's not just, well, UVA basketball was kind of a middling program for, you know, a few decades. It's looking at Charlottesville and like this central Virginia and how that just the UVA athletic department is run like a machine. And I think a lot of nationally people might not know that, but I know they have, a, they have an amazing basketball team now and football just won the coastal and blah, 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 blah. But before that, you might have thought of, of UVA as sort of like 
athletically secondary to a lot of other schools. Their athletic program beyond football and basketball is ridiculous. It's run really well. I wonder how much stuff like that, you know, matters if you're a coach that wants to go work there, working for an athletic director that you like and respect, that's going to put you in a position to succeed. Uh, you know, Virginia is just a, is a state that's got a lot going for it. It's low key kind of, if you're talking about football, it's low key kind of a, you know, a nice, recruiting spot it's not pennsylvania it's not texas it's not florida but the 757 if you're from the east coast area you know how many good players come out of there that's you know where michael vick's from it's where a lot of big time players come from so i wonder how much stuff like that matters even though we don't really care about it as consumers yeah that's a good point um last question here before we move on on this list so the the most recent hires that i have were, were 2016 so on this list i had chris beard uh, number 17, and then I had Steve Peichel, uh, 2016, also 24th ranked. And I think those were the only two that, that were higher in the last four years. But I, when I was putting this list together, I had several that were before then, um, including two from last year. So uh, Mick Cronin and UCLA, I think, was just a fantastic hire. I think them botching the search, going after all these big fish, actually worked out pretty well to get a, a great coach. Uh, Chris Mack, 2018, Louisville. Is there anybody that you can think of in the last, well, even since 2016 or in the last couple of years or, or 2020, if you want, where you would feel comfortable putting them on a top 25 list. Mick Cronin was on this list. I moved guys in and out consistently, and just about until the last draft that I did, Mick Cronin, I have my uh, list of 20 honorable mentions here, and Mick Cronin is atop the list. Casey Alexander at Belmont is second. Chris, uh, Chris Mack, Louisville, 2018 is third. Anthony Grant and Chris Jans are after him. And Mick Cronin, I... I would have no problem putting him on the list. I bumped him for Tommy Amaker. I think he was actually 23, uh, and I put Lavelle Moton from from NC Central on there. But can you think of anybody, whether it's Mick Cronin or someone else, hired in the last two, three years, where you feel comfortable right now saying they're one of the 25 best hires of college basketball in the last 20 years, even though they've only been at that program for one, two, three years? I think obviously the main answer is Takeo Siddle at UNC Wilmington. Am I right? How bitter are you that that you did homework for a completely different segment? <laughs> for those listening, I sent Chase this this link to this article. I'm pretty sure I sent it to you a few days ago or like a week ago. And I said, "Hey, do you want to, you want to talk about this?" And I think you said yes, and and then for whatever reason, you took that as we're talking about this year's coaching carousel, which has been remarkably slow. Uh, not one. Some would say uninteresting. Some would say uninteresting. And what's the best job that's open? It's probably Iona, right? I would assume that's the best. It's it's more. I saw that as a leapfrog job. I'm surprised they hired Patino, but I think that was the best leapfrog job. I know that you, before we hopped on here, you did not want to sound biased, but you made the case for JMU. But anyways, anyways, you took that as we're talking about this year's coaching carousel. Not we're just talking about how slow it's been. We're going to talk about specific hires, which. With all due respect to the fine people at Iona and Grand Canyon and Illinois, Chicago, and what else has opened up? Evansville. We just got to figure JMU, out who Georgia is going to build off the momentum that Montez Robinson's put together at Alcorn State. Like, I thought that's what the segment was. And you took that as, let's talk about UNC Wilmington's hire of Takeo Siddle, a, a former longtime Kevin Keats assistant who was at UNCW and went to NC State, and even somebody that wasn't plugged in could have seen that hire coming from a mile away. And you took 
me saying, hey, let's talk about the best hire since 2000 as let's talk about Takeo Siddle hopping down from Raleigh down to Wilmington. And I'm sorry, folks of Wilmington, nobody gives a shit. You do, obviously. Why do you care? The floor is yours. Oh, I, I don't really. <laughs> I just put a, I put, I put a lot of thought and effort in. Sometimes, I don't know if you can tell, if you this podcast has now gone completely off the rails. Sometimes I put a lot of prep into podcasts we do, and sometimes I drink like seven beers and hop on the mic with you. <laughs> so when I put a lot of prep into it, I'm like, yes, I'm going to nail this. I and feel I great. And I think the ones that there is less prep go better. I have almost no notes here for this podcast. I think it's been a pretty solid show. You tell us. How was the show? The uh, the other item, before we, we're going to do one final segment here, you said let's have some story time. And my question, I didn't even, I don't think I even responded to it. I think I said, sure. And my question to you is, what genre of story are we thinking? You, you sir, told a marvelous poop story last week or two weeks ago Thank when you. we were having the, the toilet paper conversation. Still single. And, I mean, we could do that all day. Or are you just looking for general dumbassery here? Well, look. From story time. I'm always down for general dumbassery. But before we got on here... I was like, hey, let's go. You boys got to save the universe. We got we got some Mass Effect multiplayer going in the other room. And you were like, give me five minutes. I'm parenting my child. So, like, this is how I often think of you when I'm not podcasting with you. You are, like, dutiful, young 30s father, happily married. And I just want to know what was the dowdy lifestyle like before then? You know, it's been a while. So I, I met my wife. We actually met freshman year of college. And then we started dating sophomore year. So I was 19, 20. Oh, so we you were locked dating. down early. So I am 30. I'm going to be 32 this year. At what age does it get where you don't remember off the top of your head how old you are? Did that start at like 25? Because you're what, 29? 29. Are you at that point? No, I, I still know how old I am. But 29 is an easy one to remember because you're like, oh, this is it. This is the last run on point. the Death Star. Yeah, yeah. I think once you maybe once I hit thirty, it just it stopped mattering until forty. So it's been a while. So like I said, I'm thirty one. It's been it's been twelve years since I've been in the alley. It's been a while. Before that, God, I got a pretty good story actually. Okay, great. Give it to me. I have a good story. So back the summer uh, after freshman year of college, I was I didn't have a fake ID like freshman year. I, I didn't have plans to get a fake ID going going into sophomore year but a buddy of mine he went to he was in the younger end of the spectrum so he was born in the summer so he was always the young guy like when we started going to the casino senior year of high school he was always young he wasn't 18 yet he was you know he was 17 and when he went and got i think he had to renew his license um at 16 maybe he they messed up his birth date so it said that he was like 25 when he was really i think like 17 so because he has this real license, he was able to go to the liquor store. He was able to go to the casino, even though he was 17 years old, and it, it scanned and everything. It was a legitimate license. So coming back uh, from my freshman year of college, I thought, you know what? This, I have an idea here. So I went to go renew my license. I lost my wallet. So after Kansas won the national championship, I lost my wallet in downtown Lawrence. So when I got back that summer, I had to you know get all new credit cards and and license and all that and I went to go get my license I fill out the paperwork you know you fill out the sheet and my birth date is September 29th 1988 
So at that time, this was in 2008, I hadn't yet turned 20. I was 19 years old, so I still couldn't, you know, go to a liquor store or go to a bar. I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just write a sloppy 8 on there and say 1985. So I did a very sloppy 8, and I didn't connect it, and it wrote 85 on there, thinking that when they send the the license, it'll say I was born in 1985, in which case I would have been 23, right? You follow? I do. So when they sent the license, it, it said 88. You know, I was kind of bummed out. But with the license, they sent the paperwork that said 1985. So I had the paperwork. So that summer, uh, you know, a couple days after I got this, we went out to, to the horse the horse track out here, and... I'm sitting. I had this paperwork in my my pocket, and I'm like, God, I wonder, I wonder if I could go up and say that I haven't got my license yet. I just renewed it, and it's 85, and it worked. So I I went up to to the bar, and they said, Do you have like a second form of ID? And then I showed them my college ID. It doesn't have your birth date on there. Right. It doesn't even have any sort of date on there. So I was able to buy beer for everybody that we were with because none of us were 21 because my my paperwork said 1985. After I bought maybe. A hundred beers in the course of two hours, <laughs> they caught on, unsurprisingly, because I was walking away from these bars with like a tray of fifteen beers, right? Fantastic. So they caught on to that. Um, it actually didn't end up too bad. I just just got a minor for possession and then got banned from the horse track for for three years. The three years that 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 is. Uh... That is an interesting punishment, too, because it's almost like you were banned for the three years that you claimed to have. Exactly. So I don't know if that was part of the punishment, because when they when they busted us, I kept the story of I was born in 85. And you're like, OK, great. You're buying alcohol for minors. And I kept that story for whatever reason for quite a while, like a couple hours that night while they were trying to figure out what to do with us. And then I realized, you know what? I think it would be better just to tell the truth and, and get the $185 fine. And then just go home and not come to the horse track for three years. So it worked out pretty well. I like how mathematically neat that story was, but I also like that there was an important parable at the end for all of our young listeners. Always tell the truth. Morally upright. We should we should change the name from high motor to morally upright. You know, I was I was in the elevator the other day and I came up with a really good podcast name. High morals. No. Crop dusting in elevators. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. But it fits so well. Does it? You've never done it. Oh, I'm not saying I've never done it. I'm saying, how does it fit with what we do on this podcast? If you came across a pod called Crop Dusting and Elevators, would you click on it? So this is just a pure marketing bit for you. Yeah, and it wouldn't even have to be, like, we could change the premise where we talked about random things. But, I mean, that that's kind of what podcasts, and we can even extend it to, like, website names are. They don't, like, what does the Daily Beast mean? I don't have a goddamn clue what that means. I don't know what that one means, but some of them, some of them are at least kind of like Gawker. I I get what you're doing there. Right, right. But there are also a lot of podcasts where they're like, what, what does this name even mean? And it doesn't matter, right? Like it doesn't matter what it means, but if you saw the name crop dusting and elevators, you would probably click. Right, like my podcast, Master of None, people look at it and go, oh, that must be a podcast that constantly rips off Aziz Ansari. Exactly, or maybe he hosts it, and then they click on it and realize that you're the host, and they get more excited. I don't know about that. Do you have a story for us before we go here? I mean, I have so many stories, though. I, I didn't know I was supposed to prepare one. I, I wanted the full Andrew Doughty story experience. Have you ever been arrested before? 
Uh, I have not been arrested now. Mm. I've done plenty of shit probably worth getting arrested over, but have not been arrested. I'll I'll bring one next week. How about that? Yeah. Call that a tease, kids. You let something marinate for you. So coming this week on the show, I've asked some people for feedback on these these NFL draft teleconferences that I'll post sometimes, Todd McShay, Mel Kuyper. Each uh, one of them had, had won the last couple of months, and it seems like people enjoy it hearing those two rattle off answers to, to what, 20, 30 questions. Uh, so there, there's going to be another one with Kuiper coming this week, and I'll play that one that I'll drop on Wednesday, the Mel Kuiper NFL Draft Media Teleconference. On Wednesday, you can get an instant download or notification if you click that subscribe button on Overcast, Apple, whatever app you use to listen. And then Chase and I will be back next week, and per usual, Chase will prepare a story for you. Um, and we try to kind of fill our time because do you wake up, how how often during the day do you sit here and say, what day is it? And it takes you several seconds to figure it out. Oh, that's not a new thing for me though. Cause I always, that that has nothing to do with sport. But last week we talked about how time zones have become irrelevant. That, that has nothing to do with sports for you. Yeah. It's cause I work from home all the time. So this isn't just a coronavirus thing for me. So I'm constantly walking around my house. Like, is it Thursday? Is it Monday? I don't know. We'll be back next weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the High Motor Podcast. I saw a friend today, it had been a while And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in